0: This morning, we are in the middle part of Ephesians chapter 4, and Paul is contrasting the new life in Christ from the previous way of life that the Gentiles lived. So remember, Paul is writing in Ephesians to Gentile Christians. Now, I want to caution you at the outset, and oftentimes, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, many times we have a tendency to downplay our story of conversion, What I mean by that is if you don't have some great story of God delivering you from just massive sin, we sometimes feel like our story is not worth sharing. And I want to tell you that any time somebody moves from darkness to light, it is worth sharing. God is delivered all of those that are in christ from their sin so your story of transformation from death to life brothers and sisters is what the world needs to hear it doesn't matter if you haven't been delivered from some drug addiction you have been saved from pride lust selfishness greed materialism that is worth sharing with others so the important aspect of your conversion story, if you're in Christ this morning, is that Jesus transformed your heart. He gave you a heart of flesh when you at one time had a heart of stone. So this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we're going to look at three specific ways that Paul talks about this. Number one, he talks about the old life described, then he talks about the old life described, that is ultimately abandoned, and then the new life that is embraced. So the old life described, the old life abandoned, and the new life embraced. Number one, the old life described. If you look in verse 17, the verb that Paul uses there is testify. This is a solemn word that he is using. He's not just suggesting that the Gentiles do this. He is telling them, warning them not to do this. If you do not do these things, it will bring disastrous consequences upon you. Now, it seems a little confusing for Paul, who's writing to Gentiles, to tell these Gentiles to no longer live like Gentiles. But he's not talking about ethnicity in this moment. He's talking about all of the characteristics that often describe the Gentiles as an ethnic group. We have to go back and think about the differences between Jew and Gentile. Jews, strict monotheists. Gentiles, worshipped a plethora of gods. Jews, one man, one woman. Gentile, all sorts of sexual immorality. Jews, did not make Any sacrifices except to Yahweh. Gentiles sacrificed to a number of gods. And they ate food sacrificed to idols. So there are all of these vast differences between Jew and Gentile. Paul is telling these Ephesian Christians to abandon the way of life that once characterized them as ethnic Gentiles. And he describes the life of these Gentiles prior to faith in Christ. He says they were darkened in their understanding. That means they had a warped and diminished view of what was right and what was wrong. He says they were alienated from the life of God. They were spiritually cut off from God. We know that the Jewish people had a specific covenant with God, and the consequences, the rewards of that covenant were land and blessing and promise. The Gentiles were not under that covenant. So they were cut off, as Paul says, spiritually cut off from those tangible manifestations of the covenant. And they were alienated from God, Paul says, because of their ignorance and their hardness of heart. Now, don't forget as we're reading this, that Paul's not just talking to Ephesian Gentiles here. He's talking to everyone. Anyone that is not in Christ. This is what describes you currently. Or if you're in Christ, this is what once described you. People's ignorance of God or their ignorance of his law is not a valid reason to have sin. It is not a valid excuse for sin. As human beings, we do not have the right to determine what is sin and what is not. That is completely up to the Lord. And he has made it clear in his word what he expects of all of humanity, regardless of whether or not they're in Christ or not. Paul says these Gentiles were ignorant due to their hardness of heart. Now part of the reason, if you're a Christian this morning, part of the reason sometimes... We do not realize what we're doing is sin is because our hearts have become hardened. Paul explains this deeper in his letter to the Romans. Chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Here's what he said. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity... To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. By nature, I generally don't consider myself a fearful person. I mean, I'm a little bit afraid of the dark, I don't like roller coasters, and I don't like heights. But for the most part, I don't consider myself to be that fearful. But there is one thing that scares me to the bottom of my socks. And that is a heart that would be hardened towards sin. That is completely horrifying to me. That I would get so comfortable in my sin that the Holy Spirit would no longer even bring about conviction in my heart. What Paul is teaching here, brothers and sisters, every sin matters. Every single one Every white lie, every harmless thought that nobody but you knows about, every spoken word that is not God-honoring, every angry or judgmental thought that you have towards somebody else, all of those sins have to be confessed before a holy God and repented of. The problem with hard hearts Is that when these sins manifest themselves, if we do not confess them and repent of them, it becomes easier and easier to do them. And over time, we feel less and less conviction. You don't go from being faithfully married to your spouse to an adulterer overnight. You don't go from being a kind and compassionate person to a murderer overnight You don't go from being a patient and peaceful person to an angry and hateful person at the snap of a finger. These things happen over time when we are hardened to the effects and the consequences of sin in our life. Sin slowly eats away at our hearts and our minds. And if we're not actively killing it, we're asking for trouble. I love James's description in his epistle. I kind of call this the formula for how sin happens. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, here's what he says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Don't miss that. Whose desire? Their own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We, brothers and sisters, we are sinful creatures with sinful desires. And when those sinful desires lure and entice us, and we let those desires grow, it brings forth sin, which leads to spiritual death. It's not Satan's fault that we sin. It's our fault. We're unholy at our core. We are born into sin as a result of Adam and Eve eating of that fruit in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Now for the Gentiles, Paul explains what those specific sins are. And he explains them in verse 19. He says they have become calloused. But then he says they are guilty of sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When Paul talks about sensuality... In other passages, he's almost always referencing unrestrained sexual behavior. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, that manifests itself basically in the same way it manifests itself in 2022 in America. You name it, any type of sexual immorality you can think of, homosexuality, polygamy, adultery, or anything more twisted than any of those things, that's what Paul is talking about here. That is what the Gentiles... We're living under. And it's not just that this type of behavior was happening. Paul says they're greedy to do it. They desire to do it. This whole little section of this passage is describing what life is like in the old life. Prior to faith in Christ. At its core, all of these various sins can be boiled down ultimately to one word. And that is idolatry. That is worshiping things that God created rather than God himself. When we do not find our identity in who God says that we are, we will search for it in created things. We will search for it in sex, in pleasure, in money, in family, in hobbies, and ultimately all of those things are simply idols. They make us feel like we're worshiping something when we are rather worshiping the created instead of the creature. So number one, the old life described. All of these verses, this is what described all of these Ephesian Gentiles prior to faith in Christ. Now he's going to go on and say, what about the old life abandoned? So after describing this Gentile way of life, Paul says in verse 20, and he interjects in verse 20, and he reminds the Gentiles that the type of life previously described is not compatible with what they learned about Jesus. That's such a great verse. I want to read it. The very beginning of verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. He's telling them, no. You cannot live this way. He takes it back. To Jesus. Now we've been working our way through one of Paul's letters, but hopefully you understand that all of Paul's letters are rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything Paul is writing to these churches about in all of his epistles, it all goes back to the life, the example, the teaching, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it's all about. Every parable, every sermon that Jesus spoke, Paul is saying, you did not learn that way of life that I just previously described. You did not learn Christ that way. And he challenges the Ephesian believers to put off their old self. Now, when I was a kid, and I think they've kind of made a resurgence, there were these little bracelets that we used to wear called, What Would Jesus Do?, They might still be popular. I don't know. I'm kind of out of it. I'm an old man now. But when I was a child, those were really popular. And really, that's a great phrase to continue to use in our own life. It really hasn't become outdated. What would Jesus do is exactly what Paul is telling these Ephesian Gentiles to do here. Put off your old way of life. This is not the way that you learned Christ. What would Jesus do in this situation, in this scenario? We as sinners on our own cannot put aside our sin on our own. How do I know this? Paul says it elsewhere in Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in a life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Spirit of God has to be working in our hearts to give us the power through his Spirit to overcome, to put off the old self. So apart from Christ, our hearts are completely sinful with no hope of getting any better. Jesus is the one who heals our heart and his Spirit transforms our hearts from hearts of stone, as we've said, to hearts of flesh. Our former manner of life, Paul says, is corrupt. And here's the deal. Those deceitful desires that you and I have, it's not the devil's fault. It's our fault. These desires are deep within our heart. Prior to life in Christ, Every single person has spiritual heart failure. And there is no medicine for spiritual heart failure apart from Jesus himself. He is the one who heals our spiritual hearts. Brothers and sisters, remember this about the gospel. We cannot fully understand the beauty of the gospel until we rightly understand the filthiness of our hearts. We cannot understand the beauty of the gospel until we rightly understand the filthiness of our own hearts. Because until you realize how filthy your heart is, you don't realize that you need Jesus You don't realize that you need his atoning death on the cross to make you right with the holy God because you don't see inside your heart the evil and the sin and the corruption that Paul has been talking about in this passage. A healthy understanding of the gospel begins with a healthy understanding of the filthiness of our own hearts. We must also, Paul says, be vigilant in the renewing of our minds. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who does this work within us. We have to actively, through the Spirit, pursue renewing our minds. How do we do that? Through the study of God's Word, through dying to self daily, through confession of sin, through memorizing Scripture, through praying to God, being gathered together with His church every week. That's how we renew our minds. The Holy Spirit works through all of those measures as we daily seek to kill sin and renew our minds. David Platt, well-known pastor and author, says this in one of his books, the way to conquer sin is not by working hard to change our deeds, but by trusting Jesus to change our desires. We renew our minds when we trust God the Spirit of God, to do the work that only He can do. We're not capable of changing our hearts on our own. The Spirit must work within us. So we have the old life described. Then we have the old life abandoned. And now, Paul says, we have this new life that we must embrace. We must receive this new life. And that happens At conversion, once we are in Christ, our lives are no longer characterized by unrighteousness and filth. Now, our life is characterized by righteousness and holiness. But whose righteousness and holiness? Not ours. Christ's righteousness and holiness in us. One day, every single human being that has ever walked the face of this planet will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there are two responses to that judgment. Number one, God will look at all of those that are in Christ and he will see the righteousness of his son in that person. Or he will see the filth and the unholiness and the unrighteousness of all of those not in Christ and they will be forever cast out from his presence. That's what the Bible teaches. That is biblical truth. So the question for all of those this morning that are in Christ is this. How much do you strive for righteousness and holiness in your everyday life? I suppose it's possible to accidentally act holy and righteous. But generally speaking, this takes intentional practice, intentional discipline. For all of us in the room that are in Christ today, we are called to righteousness. We are called to holiness. Brothers and sisters, in an age where what is right and wrong is shifting back and forth, literally every 12 hours, it seems, we have to know what is right and what is holy. And I can tell you where you can find it, right here. This book teaches us how to live with righteousness and holiness. If we do not make a decision to believe what the Bible teaches, then we will simply drift in with what the rest of the world teaches us is right or wrong. We do not help our lost friends our lost co-workers, our lost family members, when we simply accommodate our behavior to fit in with them. That certainly doesn't help them, and all it does is create more sin in our hearts. I'm not talking about being arrogant or self-righteous or being a prude. This is called being biblical, doing what the Bible teaches about how we should live our life. It's okay to fight for holiness. It's okay to fight for righteousness. Not out of a desire to be better than anyone else, but out of a desire to please the one who gave his life for us. I want to live a holy and righteous life, not because I'm better than anybody else, but because Jesus transformed my heart. We cannot revert back to the old way of life that Paul talks about earlier in this passage. When he says that these Gentiles lived in the futility of their thinking, they were darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God, hearts that were hardened. We can't go back to that when we're in Christ. Because when we do, the the church's corporate witness is damaged. I hope as we've worked our way through all of this letter, that you are beginning to pick up on a theme about what is most important to the church of Jesus Christ. As we've worked our way through these four and a half chapters, are you picking up on what really matters to Paul? Are you picking up what really matters to God? And it's not a lot of the things that we often emphasize It's not the facilities. It's not the pastor. It's not numerical growth. It's not the charisma of the leader. He's primarily concerned with producing disciples who have healthy fruit, who then go on to produce more disciples with healthy fruit. Paul cares about churches, desires for churches to be healthy. Whatever that might look like, According to the world standard, it doesn't matter. What matters is what the Bible teaches about what makes a church healthy. We can have fantastic preaching and fantastic music and fantastic programming, nice facilities, a staff that's friendly, and lots of nice people, and we can be immature spiritually. None of those things are a guarantee that the hearts of the people in the room are mature. So we're going to measure spiritual maturity by what the Bible teaches. That is, do we have a room full of people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Matthew 5 tells us? Do we have a room of people who strive to receive the word of God week in and week out, knowing that it is useful as Paul tells Timothy, for training and teaching and rebuking and correcting in righteousness? Do we have the types of relationships with each other that we're willing to step in and hold people accountable and love people through difficult times? That is what Paul is desiring for this church at Ephesus. That is what we all should be desiring for our body here at First Baptist. That should be our passion That should be our desire as a church. For all that are in Christ the goal is spiritual maturity. That's it. Don't worry about anything else. Know the word. Pray the word. Teach the word. Sing the word. Meditate on the word. If you do those things you will be mature. I'm reminded of These verses in Isaiah, and I didn't plan on reading it, so give me a second to get there. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Doesn't mean somebody's automatically converted when they read it. But every time we speak these words, God is at work. Paul wants the church at Ephesus to understand. They have left this previous life. They are now walking in Christ. And the best way to ensure that hearts continue to confess sin and to pursue righteousness and to grow in holiness is to stay connected to the body and read and study and meditate and love the word of god i was speaking with a man not long ago who walked by our facility and he was homeless we were talking and we gave him some food and some bottled waters and things like that and i asked him what he knew about jesus and he told me one of the, the great parables of Jesus when he healed uh, the woman with the blood condition when she touches the hem of his garment. And I said, that, that is a great story that you shared with me. That's an awesome miracle that Jesus did. And then I said, but do you know what the greatest thing Jesus did? He paused for a moment. And then I gave him the answer. I said, He died. how can that possibly be the greatest thing that Jesus did? And it is that Jesus came, performed a number of miraculous things and then humbled himself, became obedient to death, even to death on a cross, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. That's the best thing that Jesus did. He died. Died for my sin died for your sin, and God raised him from the dead three days later, demonstrating to everyone who will hear it that Christ has now paid the punishment for sin, and God is pleased with the sacrifice that his son made. So the question for all of us this morning is do you know that that really is the best thing that Jesus ever did for you? That he died for your sin? And for those that are not in Christ today, let me just implore you to do what we say every single week. We're not going to draw it out. We're not going to make any emotional appeal. We're just going to do exactly what the Bible teaches and says to do. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent of your sin and trust in the finished work of Christ. That will guarantee you eternal life and restored relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this picture that Paul gives us of the life that all of us once lived apart from faith in you. And now, for all of us that are in Christ today, we just want to rejoice and say thank you that that way of life that Paul described in verses 17 through 19 of this passage no longer describe us. You have transformed our hearts. You have changed us through the power of your Spirit. And we want to follow you the way that we learned Christ with humility and grace and mercy and compassion. And God, if there is anyone here who is still dead in their sin, they are still following the course of this world as Ephesians 2 tells us, I pray today you would soften their heart. May they confess their sin, repent of their sin, and believe in Jesus for salvation. We thank you for your word that never returns empty. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.